Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. And the New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Um, You might think of this as the first Lent, uh, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led Jesus up and presented in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered the devil. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only the Lord. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And this is referring back to the Psalm 91 we just read. The Lord will command angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. After finishing every test, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy God, we give you thanks for this uh, glorious day, for this chance to be together, even as we enter into this season of Lent uh, with one another and with you. Uh, We thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that you would help us to hear it well so that uh, we might know you better and we might make you better known in this world. We ask you to bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so, so several weeks ago, there was a good question that came up in one of our, our uh, post-worship uh, fellowship times about the relationship between God and the devil. Uh, you know, if you haven't had a chance to hang around after church, you should. We don't have just run-of-the-mill uh, coffee chats around here. What's the relationship between God and the devil? And, and that's a good question. It's, it's, uh, it's one that has uh, bedeviled. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, bedeviled theologians and thinkers for just about ever. Uh, Artists have given us probably the most colorful and creative and interesting ideas about who the devil is and where it came from. 
Some of our greatest teachers have offered possible explanations about why there is evil at all. Because we're bold to say that, that God created a world that is good and very good. That's what we hear in Genesis. That God created out of goodness, out of the overflow of divine love. And yet we barely get into the great story before things go almost entirely sideways. We, we only get three chapters into the Bible uh, before we're made deeply and painfully aware that there is something at work in this world actively seeking to destroy life, to ruin goodness, to mangle the beauty for which we're all made. And this shady character kind of pops up from time to time, and eventually we call it the Satan, Hasatan, the accuser. You know, for instance, in the book of Job, which is, I want to say, more of a theological thought experiment about, the, about bad things happening to good people than a historical account of events. But in this book, we, we, we meet the Satan, who is this kind of junior uh, member of the divine court tasked with public prosecution. But even, even then, I, I get the kind of distinct sense that the poet who wrote uh, the book of Job needed someone or something uh, not quite human, but a kind of a sub-person, if you will, to cause the problem about, uh, that he wanted to think about. Right? There's got to be a reason for the mess of things. N.T. Wright, uh, the theologian, suggests that, that the way that we talk about evil is similar to the way that, that long before we had anything like a picture of a black hole, astronomers had the idea of a black hole. Uh, something that explained what was happening, what they were observing, even though they, they couldn't fully understand what was going on or, or even see it, for that matter. And although we do now have something like a, a picture of, of a black hole, we, and we kind of know what happens when they appear, they're still almost entirely mysterious. We can't go and explore them. Right? And in some ways, the black hole pictures that we do have push the analogy forward. Because we don't know exactly what's at work, but we know that what we're seeing can't be disregarded. Right? Just because we can't quite explain it doesn't mean it's not happening. And, and annoyingly, perhaps, this is kind of how the Bible is with evil. And even more so about Satan, the, the devil. If you thought I was going to explain the existence of evil, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed this morning. I, I'm not going to try to say anything more than the Bible says about it. What the Bible says, that the scriptures bear witness to a reality that we can't explain, but we know it's happening. And maybe someday we'll understand it, but right now all we can say is that we have seen evil at work in the world in all kinds of ways. We've known what St. Paul is talking about when he says that whenever he wants to do good, it seems like evil is lurking around the corner to trip him up. And even though we, we know it, we, 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 don't, we don't really talk much about the devil, the accuser, the subpersonal evil uh, in our tradition very much. And perhaps that's because it's so hard to kind of pin down. Maybe it's because we're just a little bit embarrassed about the cartoon versions of the guy in red spandex with the pitchfork. But it might also be a response to uh, those limbs of the church that, that spend too much time talking about the devil. You know, a fact that I think points us to two uh, equal but opposite mistakes. C.S. Lewis pointed this out in one of his books. But he, he said that the, 
the, the first mistake is to give evil too much credit, right? We, we do that. We, attribute, we can attribute every misstep and misfortune to demonic scheming. Uh, we might walk around on eggshells, worried that there's a demon under every rock or around every corner just waiting to catch us up and drag us hellward. We can become so obsessed with evil and rooting it out that in a roundabout way, evil ends up dictating the terms of our lives. We do everything we, to protect against it. We let it hem us in. We give it entirely more power than it actually has. But the, the opposite mistake, you know, pretending that evil isn't really uh, a thing, is equally misguided, I think. You know, laughing off the reality of evil because we're embarrassed about cartoons or, or pretending that, that things spiritual are only good. You know, people often say that they are spiritual but not religious. I don't think they generally mean that they're, they're off-worshipping demons. And we have this assumption that spirituality is invariably good, but that means that we can't actually account for the world as we know it. A world that includes things like opioid crises and residential schools and the threat of nuclear war, for heaven's sake, let alone my persistent inability to love God and my neighbors with everything that I've got. You know, when we lose the language of evil, we lose a way to name the things that are fundamentally opposed to the world as God wants it. When we lose the language of evil, we lose the capacity to express a reality that we know, that there is something at work in this world, and even ultimately and intimately in our own lives, that is opposed to the abundant life for which God has made us in all things. You know, when Luke tells us that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he doesn't need to explain himself. He feels no need to explain what he's talking about, because everyone for whom he was first writing, would have taken it as self-evident truth that evil is a reality to be reckoned with. This, is, this sub-personal accuser is familiar. And I think it's familiar even to the, uh, us who, who share a much different worldview than our first century forebears. Now, even though we may not understand the world in the same way that they did, our experience of evil is no less real. But, you know, I think we need to name that, but I, we also need to pay attention to Luke's main point, which is not to make us afraid of the devil, but to fix our eyes on the one who will stare evil down and destroy it. You know, Luke begins his gospel by telling the guy that he's writing it for, this guy named Theophilus. He says, Theophilus, I want you to know the truth about the things that you've been taught. Luke's whole aim is to draw us closer to the truth of things, and the truth of things is that while evil is a clear and present reality, it is not going to win. It will not get the last word. Even though it parades around as powerful, in the end it is weakness. Even though it claims to offer something worth living for, it is only death. And we are on the side of the living God. Luke is showing us that we are called and claimed by the one who can do what we can't do. What Adam and Eve failed to do, what Israel failed to do, what we continue to fail to do, to live only for the world as it will be when God gets the world God wants, this world that teems with hope and peace and joy and love. Yeah, but here's the thing, and this is grace, that in Jesus' company, it's not what we can't do, but what he does do that defines us. 
in Jesus' company. It's not what we can't do, but what he does that defines us. And we are called to live towards that definition and to grow into it. Now, ultimately, I think this story is a call to know who and whose we are, to recognize who is on our side and what it means. We are children of God, made in the image of God, meant to reflect God's extravagant love in the world. And evil wants no part of that. And so the devil's tactic is really, really clear in this story. And because evil is not creative, I want to remind us again that sin is boring. Uh, What's interesting about you is not your sin. Because evil is not creative, we can safely assume that when we encounter evil in ourselves and in the world, it's just variations on a tired theme. And as far as I can tell, it comes back to our true identity. That's what it was about way back in the Garden of Eden. It's what it's about now, who and whose we are. And the temptation story follows right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, you may remember, we saw the heavens torn open and the spirit descended like a dove and the voice from heaven said, you are my beloved, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. You can read that in Luke 3, 21 and 22. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And so what's the devil's strategy? It's to go right after that identity. The first words out of the tempter's mouth are, if you are the son of God. And the battle lines are drawn, right? And the the temptation for Jesus is not to do bad things. In fact, there's a way to turn these temptations and see them as objectively good things. Feed the hungry. Take control of the world and make it right. Dazzle the doubters with glory. Now, and in the end, Jesus will, in fact, do all of these things, right? He will feed the hungry with a miracle, witnessing to God's abundance. He will gather up all things and sit on the throne of the universe. Everything will be his. He will embody God's glory. He will dive headlong into death and be raised from the grave. But he will not do that to prove who he is. He will do it all out of who God says he is. He won't accept the devil's challenges because he doesn't need to. Because he knows who he is. The beloved of the Father. God's pleasure in this world. And this is one of the wild hopes at the heart of the gospel, the mysteries of our faith, that in Jesus we too are the beloved children of God, people in whom the divine parent is well pleased. You are children of God in whom your divine parent is well pleased. See what love we've been given, that we should be called the children of God, St. John sings. Paul cries out, we have not been given a spirit of slavery, which is what we might expect from the gods, but with this God we've received a spirit of freedom and adoption. And because of that, we are meant to be people not showing how worthy we are to be in God's household, but people learning to learn learning to live the rhythms of that household simply because we've been invited in. And the more we understand that, the more we want it. You know, the psalmist sings, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than walk in the ways of the wicked. And we are more than doorkeepers. We are children of the living God. Because God says so. And nothing in heaven, earth, or hell can take that from us. And of course, we're not quite used to such extravagant grace 
We're used to earning our place, to justifying ourselves, to performing our goodness and grabbing control, pursuing the, the approval of the world around. And we're easily tempted to, by the devil's whisper, if you really are who God says you are, then. <laughs> and I don't know what follows the then for you. You know, on the one hand, I think we all know about the temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness. You know, we've seen what happens when people run around manically doing things for God. When God's people try to control and cling to power, we've seen what happens uh, in a world that oohs and ahs at the spectacular and where we're tempted to convince, or to convince ourselves that fame and fortune are the same as divine blessing and favor. But I, I'm pretty sure that what Luke shows us of Jesus' temptation is, is descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? The devil may not be creative, but we are told that he's crafty. <laughs> In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us that we're up against the wiles of the devil, which is such an evocative phrase. And I think it's safe to say that when evil gets in our ear, the temptations are particular. The tempter has a way of saying to us, to you and to me, if you are a child of God, then. Right? If you are a child of God, then you really ought to be doing this. If you are a child of God, you shouldn't struggle with, with that. If you are a child of God, then this would have happened or that wouldn't have. If you're a child of God, then you would look more like that person. Then you wouldn't have failed. Then you wouldn't have been broken by that thing. Then, then, then. If you were a child of God, then. And it's possible that we've gotten so used to this diabolical whisper that we don't even notice it sometimes. I think part of the reason that Christians need to pray and read scripture and meditate on it is so that we can make sure we're listening to the right voice. You know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they listen to it. I want to make sure we've got the right voice in our heads and in our hearts. Part of the reason we come back here week over week to say the same basic things to each other is that we need that fresh reminder of the love that we've been given that we should be called the children of God. And the devil is persistent. We need that reminder that we are not given a spirit of slavery to the things that bind and weigh us down, but we are given a spirit of freedom and adoption so that we know who and whose we are, come what may. And that's this place where we're transformed. That's where we start to grow in Christ-likeness. Because instead of listening to the devil's if-then lies, we get to live in the because and so of Jesus. Instead of listening to the devil's if-then lies, we get to live in the because and so of Jesus. Because you are God's image bearers, children of God's household, because you are perfectly loved. Before you ever manage to do anything, before your feet feet hit the floor this morning. You were loved into eternity. And so we live out of that love, out of that identity. Because and so, when we, we grow in the way of Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him, we have no need to prove ourselves, no need to grab at power, no need to seek the approval of others, because we become more and more distracted with the beauty of the fact that we are part of the answer to our prayers that God's kingdom would come, that God's will of love and justice and righteousness would come on earth as it is in heaven. 
because we're part of God's household. We are beloved children of God in whom God is well pleased. We are made for that truth. And anything less is a lie. I think this is one of the beautiful things about Lent. You know, part of what we're doing in this season is allowing ourselves to be reminded of who and whose we are. As we enter the wilderness with Jesus, we willingly face the places and spaces where our identity is at stake, where we hear the ancient hiss, if you are the child of God then. But we do it in the company of the one who binds us to the promise that there is no conditional then with God. There's only joyful response. There's only the because, of so, because and so of God in Christ. There's only the invitation to give up what keeps us from the fullness of life that God has made us for. That's why we do this weird thing with the ashes. I mean, ashes invite us to embrace our mortality, which is actually to embrace the wonder that we are God-formed, God-breathed dust, which is a surprisingly freeing reality. I mean, it reaches deep into the promise that we are because God wants it that way. And it fights back the devil's lies. It, the, the reminder that we are dust and to dust we shall return erases the devil's if-then because what can we possibly do to earn God's favor in all of our dustiness? It betrays the lie, right? When we, when we truly realize that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, then we're freed simply to receive it, to know that we are loved from the beginning to the end and then through it, which is perfect freedom. It's the freedom that frees us even when evil rages, to respond with a love of our own, to love our God and our neighbors in this whole beloved world with everything we've got, more and more, and come what may, may it be so. Thank you.